Would you guys bow your hearts and pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us opportunity as your church to be together, to worship you, to sing praises to you, to pray to you, and to hear from you. Father, I ask that right now as we go to your word, I pray that your spirit would work mightily in our hearts, that you would open our hearts to believe, to understand, to accept these truths. I pray for the hearts of those who are here, that if there is anyone here who still has not been reconciled to you, has not confessed their sin, I pray that even this afternoon you would speak to them through your word. I pray for us, those who are saved, those who are redeemed, that we would be amazed at your kindness, amazed at your grace that was shown to us in the gospel, that you have delivered us from eternity separated from you, and you have given us promise that we have hope, that when this life is over, there is one to come, and that is a life of bliss, a life of joy. Pray that you give me grace to take us through this passage of Scripture for your glory and our edification. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. As I mentioned, the sermon entitled this afternoon is A Prayer from Hell. Now, we've been studying eschatology. We've been talking about the end times. We've been talking about how this all will end based on the book of Revelation and other passages from all over the Bible. And there are so many different questions that have to do with the end times. There are so many questions that have to do with eternity. And then given the opportunities that we've been given in the last couple of weeks to just go out there and to talk to people, and you run in all kind, into all kinds of people who have no clue about afterlife, who wonder, oh, I think it's this, I think it's that. So we as believers, we have to be rooted in the Word of God so that whenever we preach, whenever we say something, we can say, hey, I believe this and this is true because of this right here. And that's why we need to be convinced. And so we thought it is appropriate to talk about this passage of Scripture that answers a lot of fundamental questions. Now, from the get-go, I want to say that the subject that we're going to be talking about is very unpopular today. You know that when you talk to unbelievers, and once you get to this When we're going to talk about it, they either really have to go, or they're offended at your tone, or they say something else. Because it is very unpopular, and sometimes even frightening. Now, I am going to say some things based on this text that might not be very comfortable, but I hope they will be in line with Scripture. Now, my intention as we look at this passage of Scripture and study the words of Jesus is not just to frighten you into heaven, because you can't frighten anyone to heaven. But you should be afraid of hell. Jonathan Edwards was accused of being a scare preacher. And he responded by saying the following, Some talk as if it is an unreasonable thing to fright a person to heaven. But I think it is a reasonable thing to endeavor to fright persons away from hell. They stand upon its brink and are just ready to fall into it and are senseless of their danger. Is it not a reasonable thing to fright a person out of a house on fire? Now, you would think it is a reasonable thing. Now, as I said, if you are a believer, I want you to be amazed at how much God has shown you, how much grace God has shown you, that He has delivered you from an eternity, as is described in this text. But if you are an unbeliever, I want you to be terrified at the prospect of spending eternity in this place. And let that fear be the first step on your journey towards grace. 
Now, it is not often in Scripture that God opens the curtain and lets us see what happens beyond the grave. Now, no doubt you've heard people, or you've talked to people, and when you ask them a question, what do you think happens when a person dies? They're like, oh, I don't know. No one has ever come back from it. No one has ever told me what's going to happen because no one has ever come back. Well, guess what? In our text here, we have here a testimony of a guy who died, went to hell, and from there, he's describing in vivid colors what happened to him. Here is a testimony of someone who died, and after his death, he is testifying of what life is like after death. Now, the account of the rich man and Lazarus answers many most fundamental questions. Questions like, is there life after death? If so, where do people go when they die? Is everyone going to heaven? Is there heaven? Is there hell? Is everyone going to hell? Is there there a chance or second chance after death? If there is heaven and if there is hell, what are they like? How do you go to heaven? And how do you avoid hell? All these questions, they're answered in the text that is before us. Now, before we read the text, I wanted to give you a context in which Jesus gave this account. The immediate context of this account in Luke 16 is Jesus is talking to Pharisees, and specifically, he's talking to them about wealth and riches. Now, Pharisees were very rich. According to chapter 16, verse 14, they were not just rich, they were lovers of money. Now, according to their theology, if you were rich, you were blessed by God. If you were poor, then you were cursed by God, or at least not blessed. Now, they interpreted material riches as a sign of God's favor towards you. In fact, this was not just the belief of the Pharisees, but common folks believed that. Remember when Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, Listen, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the very next thing that is said, that they were astonished. And they asked the question, well, then who could be saved? Because in their mind, the first ones in line to heaven were the rich because they were blessed by God. Now, there is so much in this account that we will not have time to develop or answer. But I want to do this afternoon is just answer one simple question. What does this account teach us about afterlife? And by the time we're done... I want to give you five truths concerning the afterlife that are clearly taught in this text. Now, I want you to remember that these words, they come from the mouth of the most loving, most compassionate, and most caring person ever, namely Jesus himself. Now, it's safe to say that of all the people, he knows what happens when you die. He knows what afterlife is like. So these words come from the mouth of Jesus himself. Now join me as I read Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. 
He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my family's house, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Before we begin answering the question, our main question, I want to answer two preliminary questions. First one is this, is this a parable? Is what we read a parable? Is this a parable that Jesus just made up to illustrate his point? Or is Jesus given an actual historical account of something that took place? Now, reputable commentators and preachers, they fall on both sides of this debate. Majority of them think that it is a parable. Now, I will argue that this is not a parable. And I will argue that for at least two reasons. Reason number one is, notice that neither Jesus nor Luke explicitly state that this is a parable. Now, very often as you read through the gospel, there there are many parables there. And like, for example, if you go back to chapter 15, in chapter 15, verse 3, he says, So he told them this parable, saying, and then he goes into a parable. He introduces what Jesus is going to say with the statement explicitly stating that this is a parable. Now, in this case, you do not find that introduction. Now, again, granted that this is an argument from silence, but nevertheless, it has weight because we can say that it allows for the possibility that this is not a parable. Because if he would explicitly state that this was a parable, there would be no question. But because he doesn't state that, we can argue that it is possible that this is not a parable. Now, the second reason why I argue that this is not a parable is that this account contains actual names of individuals. Now, if this is a parable, this is unlike any parable in the Bible. There is not a single parable in the Old or the New Testament that contains names of individuals. There is one parable in Ezekiel 23 where we have two names, Ohala and Aholabah, but those do not refer to individuals, those refer to the nation of Israel and Judah. There are no names of individuals in parables. Now, even if you can argue that Lazarus is a fictitious name in this parable, if this is a parable, you cannot argue that Moses is made up. And you cannot argue that Abraham is made up. Because Abraham is mentioned six times in this account, and Moses is mentioned twice. Now we do know that those are not fictitious individuals. We know whom Abraham is and whom Moses is. So my answer to the first question, is this a parable? The answer is no. Jesus is given to the disciples. He's speaking here to people and he's saying, let me tell you, let me give you a historical account of something that took place. 
Now the second question that must be answered is this, how do you explain the anthropomorphic language that is used in this account? Because the whole account here is focused on something that happens after death, right? Lazarus dies and the rich man dies. And yet the whole account, you read things like this. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Verse 24 says, Sent Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. We have mentions of eyes, finger, and tongue. Now we do know that their physical bodies are here on earth. They're buried. So at death, your physical body is separated from your soul. And we do know that these two individuals are in the intermediate state where they do not have bodies. And yet Jesus uses language like that, anthropomorphic language, in order to explain to us so that we would have a way to relate to them. In the same way you would say, God doesn't have eyes, God doesn't have a hand, God doesn't have any bodies, but yet we have verses that say, the hand of the Lord is strong to save. Does that mean that he has a hand? No. It says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro to uphold those whose heart is fully devoted to him. God doesn't have eyes. But you see, you would not be able to relate or understand or comprehend the message unless you would be put in the language that we can understand. So though these individuals here, they do not have their physical bodies, human characteristics are attributed to them so that we would be able to comprehend and understand their situation. That is what Jesus is doing in this text. Now let's begin looking at the actual text. Now Jesus begins this account by introducing us to two men. And the two men could not have been more different. The first one is the rich man. Jesus does not give his name, but he highlights four characteristics about this guy. First, it says that this man dressed well. Verse 19 says he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now when he says here purple and fine linen, those are costly fabrics that are reserved for royalty or for someone who is extremely rich. This man dressed well. Not only that, he ate well. Verse 19 says he was joyously living in splendor every day. This actually refers to feasting. If you have ESV, ESV says he he feasted sumptuously every day. Now let's just say that this man was not worried about his next meal. So he dressed well, he ate well, he lived well. He lived well, and how do we know that? Because we're told in verse 20 that Lazarus was laid at his gate. He had his own gated community. This was a rich man. Fourth, he was a righteous man. He was a religious man. Now, how do we know that? You might say, well, where is that in the text? Well, think about the context in which Jesus is given this account. He is talking to Pharisees. He's talking to people who were righteous in their own eyes. Now think about it. If this guy was immoral, if this guy was some pagan, and then Jesus told them that he went to hell, what would they say? Well, duh, he went to hell. What else did you expect? But you see, the way Jesus turns this parable on them is that they do not expect to see what happens here. This guy was a religious guy. He went to a synagogue. Notice how many times he addresses Father Abraham. Notice he believed in his connection to Abraham. He believed just like all the Jews that Jesus is addressing that, listen, we are sons of Abraham. We have eternity guaranteed to us because we have a linkage to Abraham. This was this guy. He went to synagogue every Saturday and he went to hell straight from the pew. Undoubtedly this man, he trusted in his status as the son of Abraham. Now the second 
man, second man we're introduced to is Lazarus. We're given his name. Lazarus means God is my help. Now we're told here that he is a poor man. And poor, not just poor, but he's so poor that he is reduced to begging. Most likely he is a crippled man. Because the text says here that Lazarus was laid at the gate. Which means that probably every morning somebody picked him up, brought him, laid him at the gate so that he would beg for alms. So he was a poor man. He was a crippled man. He was a sick man. Notice he says he was covered with sores. He was ill. He was a hungry man. Because the text says that he longed to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the table. And the way the text says it, it is as if that he longed for that, but he actually never got it. He desired to be fed, but his desire was never satisfied. And then finally, Jesus adds this part that the wild dogs licked his sores. Now, there's two different ways of looking at it. One way you could say that dogs took advantage of him. Even the dogs took advantage of him. Or the other way to look at it is these wild dogs, which were not like your pets at home. Wild dogs, they showed more compassion to this man than this rich man behind his gate. Now, with these few words... Jesus paints these two portraits of these two men who could not have been more different in this life. And this this brings us to the first truth. The first truth concerning the afterlife is this. Death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. Now, as you've seen, Jesus went to great length to contrast these two men. Now, despite their drastic differences in this life, both came to the same end. Both men died. The first undeniable truth, that every single person who walks on this planet, unless you will be around for rapture, is going to die. You will die. Death makes no difference. Death makes no distinction. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you are young or old, whether you are healthy or not so healthy, whether you're good looking or not so good looking, whether you're smart or not so smart, it does not matter. You have an appointment with death. No amount of money, no amount of anything, dieting, your organic food, your essential oils, or anything else will help you to avoid this appointment. Now we do know that death is the result of sin. We know Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every single person on this planet has an appointment with death. And when it comes, you can't cancel it, you can't postpone it, and you can't just not show up. Physical death ends your physical life. Now look at verse 22. It says, Now the poor man died. Now, whether that was from starvation or from sickness, a day came when this poor man died. His physical life ended. Now, we're not told anything about his burial. Most likely, he did not have a proper burial. In the eyes of society and people around him, this guy was cursed both in life and in death. And verse 22 says, And the rich man also died, and he was buried. Now, you can imagine... The burial of this man probably died in his comfortable bed, surrounded by his rich friends and his family. No doubt he had elaborate funeral. Mourners, professional mourners were hired. Expensive tomb was prepared. 
had a lavish ceremony was conducted, and the rich man was laid to rest. Or so they thought. Truth number one, death is inevitable. Truth number two that we learn from this text is that there is life after death. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, Death comes to all, but it does not end all. You see, when the rich man and Lazarus died, they did not cease to exist. In fact, the emphasis of this text is not on what happened in this life. The entire emphasis of Jesus' account is what happened after they're dead. Yes, their physical bodies were laid in a tomb. They were separated from their physical bodies, but they did not cease to exist. You see, even when you die, you are very much alive. The verse that I quoted earlier, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Notice there is something after death. In verse 22, the curtain closes on this life, and as soon as the curtain closes on this life, the curtain opens in verse 23, and Jesus tells us what happened after they die. Now we read this text. And we talk to people who think like, well, you know what? You just die and that's it. You just cease to exist. And we read this and I'm thinking of people who are tempted to commit suicide because they, they lost all hope. And because, you know, life is not worth living anymore. You look at the statistics of what's going on today, even in our country. We have a bunch of young people who are committing suicides at insane rates because their lives have lost meaning. We have a bunch of experts who tell the young people today that, you know what, your past is racist, your present is horrible, and you don't have a future because after nine years, global warming will wipe us all out. And by the way, if you're a boy, if you were born a boy, maybe you weren't born a boy, maybe you're a girl. And if you're a girl, maybe you were, maybe you're a boy. And if you don't like those two genders, there's 70 others you can try. And if those doesn't work for, if those don't work for you, come up with another one. You know, just lock down, stay at home, Get, you know, meet with some weirdos online, get into weird communities, and when you lost all your meaning, then you come to the point where like, hey, why am I living anyway? And these people who lost all hope, they think that, listen, I'm just going to end it all, and that's going to be the end. But you know what? You read this text, and nothing could be further from the truth. It is just a beginning. You might say that this life is just a small little sliver that prepares you for afterwards. What happens afterwards? Because what we have here, afterwards you have eternity. And this is just a short little segment to prepare you for that. With this whole account, Jesus says, hey guys, listen. When you die, your physical body dies. But it is just the beginning. Thinking that you will cease to exist is absolute nonsense. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look at verse 23. It says, when he died, he lifted, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. One commentator observes, he says, in Hades, the rich man could see, hear, and speak. He could feel, he could reason, and above all, He could remember. That doesn't sound like passing out of existence, does it? It doesn't because you do not pass out of existence. You see, every single man, believer or an unbeliever, you have beginning, but you do not have the end. And your death, your physical death, is merely an entrance to the life afterward. We all have eternal life. 
The quality of that life differs, but we all have it. Notice not only the rich man did not cease to exist, but Lazarus also. It says, now the poor man died, and what happened? And he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Both the rich man and Lazarus continued their existence after death. Truth number one, death is inevitable. Truth number two, there is life after death. Truth number three, there is heaven and there is hell. There is heaven and there is hell. Notice with this account, Jesus emphatically affirms that there are two and only two destinies after death. Every single person will go either to heaven or he will go to hell. Now the text says here that when Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom in this text is contrasted with the word Hades, which is the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. Verse 23 says, The rich man, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now what can we say about this place here? Now now again, you might have a different view on where the Old Testament saints went before the resurrection of Christ. But we say here that the the saints, believers, went to Abraham's bosom before the Christ ascension here. But notice here, the way the place is described, it is described first of all as a place of rest. Because when... The rich man lifted up his eyes. He saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And the idea here is that when you have a feast, and you can you know, imagine the Middle Eastern feast where they have the tables, those low tables, and people are laying down at the tables, and they're eating. And so the rich man lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and of all the people he could see, he sees Lazarus. He sees Lazarus enjoying a meal with Abraham. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8 verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now while the rich man enjoyed all his feasts in this life and the poor man was laying at his gate begging for crumbs, everything is reversed here. Lazarus is now reclining at the table with Abraham. Not only was it a place of rest, but it was a place of comfort. Because if you look at verse 25, it says, Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Remember, Lazarus had no comforts in this life. Now, Regardless of your view of where Old Testament saints went, we do know that in the New Testament, that as soon as believer dies, he goes immediately into the presence of Christ. And we have to affirm that, that as soon as you die, as soon as you leave this flesh, you will be in the presence of God. How do we know that? Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. And here are two options. Having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. He says, if I stay with you, my ministry will benefit you. But if I depart from this flesh, immediately I go into the presence of Christ. He says same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, we are of good courage. I say and prefer, notice, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Those are the two options. You are either in this body and away from the Lord, or you are absent from this body and you are with the Lord. There is no soul sleep. There is no purgatory. There's only two states. 
In this life, you are in this body for a believer. As soon as you die, you go immediately into the presence of Christ. Now, the rich man went to Hades. In Scripture, the term Hades is equivalent to the term Sheol in the Old Testament and can generally describe the realm of the dead. In the New Testament, this word appeared ten times, and it usually refers to the abode of the damned dead prior to their final sentencing at the great white throne. Now, the word Hades and the word hell are synonymous, and they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. All unbelievers who die without placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they go to their place where they await their final judgment. We used an example on Wednesday nights. We said that Hades is like jail. The lake of fire is like prison. When you get arrested, you're put in jail as you await your trial. And after your trial, after your conviction, you're given your punishment and then you're sent to prison. That's what Hades is. You are sent there until the great white throne in the book of Revelation. And after which, when you are sentenced, you are thrown into the lake of fire. Now this man here, he is in Hades. And we know that you will be thrown into the lake of fire according to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now according to Jesus... Because he's given this account. Every single one of us will die. And every single one of us will go to either one of these these places. You will either go to heaven or you will go to hell. There is nothing in between. Don't wait and don't think that, well, somehow it will work out. God, Jesus, in his infinite knowledge, is telling sinners today not to hope for anything else. Because there are only two places after death. Now that's just introduction. Because after this point, what we have is a conversation between the rich man in hell and Abraham. That's why I call this a prayer from hell. Notice as soon as the rich man closed his eyes here on earth, he opened them in hell. And of all the things and of all the people that he could see, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, whether this is a reality for all people in hell is not certain, or maybe it's just something that happened to this guy. But he sees Lazarus, a man who he knew well. He went past him every single day because he was at his gate. A man that he thought was cursed by God. A man that he had no mercy on, even though he had every opportunity to help. And now he looks, and this man that he knew very well, he's enjoying and he's comforted in Abraham's bosom. Now while Lazarus is resting, being comforted, the rich man's condition is anything but rest and comfort. And this leads us to the fourth truth. Earthly life determines eternal destination. Earthly life determines eternal destination. Now there is a connection between verses 19 through 21 and verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Jesus intentionally described and Jesus intentionally gave us portraits of these two men. However, we must emphatically state that the rich man did not go to hell because he was rich. And Lazarus did not go to heaven because he was poor. Because there is another rich man in this account, and he's in heaven. Abraham was very rich. 
We do know that he did not go to hell because he was rich. Riches in themselves are neutral. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of rich people. And he's not telling them like, you guys are going to hell because you are rich. No, God gives power to make wealth. And God could make you wealthy. But how you use your riches might be indicative of your heart and might demonstrate that you are an unbeliever. That's the point that he's getting at. You might demonstrate by the way you live your life and by the way this man lived his life, he demonstrated that he was a pagan. He demonstrated that he has never submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, never submitted to God. By his riches, he demonstrated that. Notice, according to Jesus... Hell is not reserved for murderers. It is not reserved for rapists and pedophiles. I mean, many people would read this text and they say, well, listen, I mean, this guy? Why in the world did this guy end up in hell? I mean, sure, I mean, I mean, okay, I get it. He was self-righteous, but, but which one of us isn't? And that's the whole point. See, the question is not what kind of sins you commit, but the question is whether you commit sin at all. And if you commit sin, any slightest offense against God is worthy of hell. It does not matter how you offend God, but if you offend God, the judgment for that is hell. You see, what you do in this life, your actions, they demonstrate something much deeper. They reveal and demonstrate your heart. And in this case, what we have is a demonstration of someone who had absolutely lack of mercy, who had absolutely lack of compassion, because he had none in his heart. Because he never went and asked for that mercy. Never went and begged for that compassion. And notice, because Jesus gives and Jesus describes their earthly life, he's going to argue in the rest of this text that because of what you've done in this life, you're going through in the next. So your earthly life will determine where you spend eternity. For truth, death is inevitable, there is life after death, there is heaven and hell. This life determines eternal destination. Finally, let's look at truth number five. We'll spend the majority of time here. Because that's where Jesus focuses on. And truth number five is this. Hell is a place of eternal justice and torment. Hell is a place of eternal justice and torment. Now I said the rest of the account focuses on the condition of the rich man. His prayer from hell has two basic requests. First, he begs mercy for himself. And then second, he begs for mercy for his brothers. And he's denied on both counts. Now we can tell from this text that people in hell will beg for mercy. But it will be too late. Now as we look at Jesus' description of hell here, notice first of all that hell is a place. Hell is a place. It's not just a state of mind. It's not just being surrounded by some individuals. Because you talk to people like, we believe in heaven and hell. Yeah, what is hell? Well, right now it's hell. My life is hell right now. No, hell is a place. It is explicitly stated, look at verse 28. In 28 he says, So that they will not come to this place of torment. He went to an actual, literal place. That's where he went. So the first thing we have to assert is when we're talking about afterlife, yes, heaven is a place. Lazarus went to a place, and so did the rich man. Hell, number one, is a place. Number two, 
hell is a place of torment. It is a place of torment. Now, people throw the word hell around today. Like, no doubt you've heard people say, or maybe you've even said yourself, like, man, that was hell of a game, right? Or we, like, had hell of a time. You know what hell of a time is? Right here. That's what hell of a time is. It's not just, you know, we get together with our buddies and we party and it was like, man. No, this is a description of torment and agony. Notice twice. Verse 23, verse 24, verse 25, verse 28. The words torment and agony are used to describe this place. Notice the rich man was tormented as soon as he got to hell. The life of luxury ended as soon as he closed his eyes here on earth. And the eternity of torment began. Now to be tormented is to suffer incredible pain. Again, notice Jesus uses this anthropomorphic language in order to help us imagine what that would be like to be in this place. Notice he's suffering from thirst. Look at verse 24. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Notice he's begging for mercy. It would be a great mercy to receive a drop of cold water from the finger of a beggar in hell. And even such mercy will be denied. Ever been thirsty? For an hour? For a day? How about eternity in flames of fire? That's the description of hell. Now people say, well, come on, man. I mean, you can't be talking about little here. Like you're talking about like burning forever. I mean, it's just a metaphor. Okay, what is that a metaphor of? A walk in the park? Cruise to Bahamas? What else? I mean, if it's a metaphor, it is describing something that you otherwise cannot imagine. And if you can imagine being thrown into a volcano and being there forever and ever and ever and ever, and we can't even comprehend that, we can't even understand what that's like. That is a picture of what this place is like. I mean, all throughout the Bible, hell is described as a place of unquenchable fire. Isaiah 66 verse 24 says, They will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says, His winnowing fork is in his his hand. And he will thoroughly clear out the threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, to be physically tormented with fire and brimstone is only a picture of what that eternity entails for those who reject Christ. Now, even though the rich man was in haze and he was awaiting his final judgment at the great white throne, the torment already has begun. So hell is a place of torment. Number three, hell is a place of justice. Hell is a place of justice. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Now look carefully at the second word in Abraham's answer. Child, remember. Remember. 
You see, based on this, we can argue that there will be a memory of this life in the afterlife. According to Abraham, the memory of this life is not lost when you die. You see, since this life determines the afterlife, since this life determines whether you end up in heaven or in hell, you will know why you ended up in one place or another. It's not like you're going to wake up and you're like, wow, who am I? Why am I here? No, there is a connection to your previous life. People will remember this life and they will glorify God for the salvation that He has accomplished them in eternity with glory. In glory. And people in hell will remember this life and every missed opportunity. Listen to this quote. What a horrible thing memory will be for the unsaved. To remember throughout all eternity every sin committed and unrepented of. And therefore unforgiven. To remember every opportunity to get right with God which has been carelessly passed by. To remember every gospel message one has ever heard and yet refused to believe. Memory will be indeed as the worm that dieth not, tormenting the soul forever. You see, it is vital to maintain that man will retain memory in the life to come. Otherwise, how are you going to praise God for all eternity? What are you going to praise Him for? You're going to praise Him for because you understand that you were a wretched sinner who was, who was on His way to hell. And God in His mercy has shown kindness to you and delivered you and saved you. And you're going to be praising Him for all eternity for that. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we have a glimpse of heaven. We have a glimpse of saints in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 they say, Worthy are you to break the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Notice they worship Jesus. Why? Because he has redeemed people for himself from every tribe and nation. They glorify because they remember their past life and they're offering praises to God. Now the unbelievers likewise will retain memories of their lives. They will know exactly why they are in hell. Notice the rich man remembered that he lived on earth. Notice that the rich man remembered Lazarus. Notice that the rich man remembered that he has five brothers. He remembered all that very, very well. He had conscious awareness of his past and of his present. You know when people die, it's like, well, I'll just cease to exist. No, none of that. He's consciously aware, and he's feeling the torment at the moment. And one can argue that the memory which he has must be the hottest hell of all. Because he knew that he missed this opportunity. You see, we read this text, and I can tell you on the authority of Scripture that if any one of us will end up in hell, you will remember this Sunday. And you will remember this message. And you will remember that you have rejected it. And you will suffer for it. Because this rich man, he remembered it all. And he knew it all. He had his memory. Now, while people will retain this memory, again, we have to assert that Just because you're suffering in this life does not mean that you have eternity of bliss prepared for you. And just because you're enjoying your life right now, you're going to hell. 
No, as I said earlier, the lifestyle that you live is indicative of something that is much deeper. It points to your heart. Now, why do I say that? Because I would have you notice that in this conversation between Abraham and the rich man, nowhere does he claim that he's suffering unjustly. No one does he say, well, why am I here? What am I doing here? I'm supposed to be like right there with you. You don't have that conversation. Nowhere does he claim that it is somehow unjust for him to be there. And in fact, the people who were listening to Jesus give this account, and their minds would be like, why is he there? What is he doing there? But he, while he's in hell, he understands exactly why he's there. Now some people might argue, well listen, this is kind of a disproportional. I mean, what did this guy do? Like, probably didn't kill anybody. Why is he there for all eternity? Why are sinners going to suffer there for all eternity? And the reason why we argue like that is because we don't understand the magnitude of our sin. That's why. You see, I mean, if you can sin against a rock, for example, you kick a rock or something. I mean, the consequences of that are, there are no consequences. Right? If you sin against man, you go and you just kick a man. I mean, there will be consequences. Then you sin against a different man. You go and you kick the President of the United States. Different consequences, right? But what if you kick God? Completely different consequences. You see, the punishment is proportional to the person that you offend. And when we're talking about offenses, David tells us in Psalm 51, that every single offense is ultimately done against who? Against God. And every single offense deserves a punishment. And as this text says, eternal punishment. And the reason why it's going to be eternal, because sinners don't stop sinning in hell. You realize that? It's not like, okay, you got your sentence and you got people think like, okay, you know, there's purgatory. You go to purgatory, you suffer there for, okay, year, two, five, ten, twenty, and then you're out. Listen, nobody gets out of this place. No one. This is a place of justice. This is a place of eternal torment. And so what we're talking about here is that because every single person has sinned against an infinitely holy God, God determines judgment. He says the wages of sin is death, physical death. And if you die physically in a state of spiritual death, it's eternal death. And eternal death is eternal separation from God. Now, what have you noticed here that this passage in Scripture elsewhere argues that hell is a matter of justice. Hell is a matter of justice. It's not that God just like, oh, I get angry and if I don't like you, I'll send you there. No, God's justice must be satisfied. Listen to this text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes this, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's talking to people who are persecuted in Thessalonians. And he says, it is just for God to afflict those people. Eternal judgment is coming on them, and it is a matter of justice. And notice, the rich man knew precisely why he went to hell. And how do we know that? Because look at his request. He requests for Lazarus to go and preach to his family. He says, I have, I have five brothers. I have five brothers, and he knows that he has five brothers. And he knows the kind of lifestyle that they live right now. And because of the lifestyle that they live right now, that they will join him there soon. And he knows that. And he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus so that he would go and he would preach 
to them. Now, Abraham believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. Isn't that amazing? Look at the response, verse 29. He says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You see, if only this rich man heeded the instruction given by Moses and the prophets, he would not end up in this place. Isn't that what he's saying? He says, if only you believed the word, if only you believed Moses, if only you believed the prophets, if only you would live as they tell you you should live, you would not be in this place, and neither would your brothers. That's what he's saying here. They have Moses and the prophets. There is only one reason, MacArthur writes, why this rich, why this rich man, and by extension all the unredeemed, end up in hell, failing to believe and act on the truth of Scripture. Now the teaching of Moses and the prophets is clear. You cannot earn your way to heaven. Pretty clear, right? You need someone who would get you there. You need someone who would provide a way for you there. You see, if only you recognize that you are not good enough. If only you recognize that you cannot make it on your own. If only you humble yourself. If only you plead for mercy, you would receive that undeserved gift of eternal life. Now yes, repentant life must be demonstrated by acts of kindness, by acts of mercy and self-denial, which was not evident in the life of this rich man. Notice the rich man is aware of Moses. He's aware of the prophets. Notice he does not claim ignorance. He does not say, but I did that. No, there is no conversation like that. He knows why he's there. He knows he failed to live up to the standard that God has provided. He knows why he's there. So, a rich man is suffering the torment of hell justly. And so will every single person who will end up there. There isn't going to be questions. And on the last day when you stand before the judge and the books are open, this is just a confirmation. Hey, you know why you're going there. But because I'm a just judge, I have the evidence right here. And it says, and the books were open. And every single one of them was judged according to the things which were written in the books. And every single one of them was sentenced. There is enough evidence to condemn every single one of us. And unless that evidence is erased in Jesus Christ, you have the rap sheet that will, that will condemn you to hell. Next, hell is eternal. In this description, we see that hell is eternal. Look at verse 26. He says, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, of all the things that we've said so far, this is probably the most frightening of all. You will remain for eternity in the state in which you die. That's what he's saying. Now, again, it is hard for us finite human beings to compute what eternity is like. I mean, just think for a moment what does forever mean. Because we don't, we don't have anything that's forever. In this life, you might have dark seasons. You might be sick. You might go through pain, loss. But you do know that, listen, eventually this will end. Right? I mean, this month will end. This year will end. The sickness will end. And dark seasons of life will give way to better seasons of life. And you have that hope that, like, yeah, I know it's tough right now, but it will change. But you know what? When you're in hell, 
It will never change. Never, ever. Notice he says, you are in this place, and I'm in that place. And from this place, no one crosses there. And from that place, no one crosses here. It's fixed. It's eternal. Where you are, this is where you're going to spend eternity. Jesus clearly states that death permanently fixes everyone's destiny. No one will be able to escape hell, nor will anyone visit hell. You see, if you are in Christ, you have eternity of bliss that is guaranteed to you. If you are in hell, there's no purgatory. No one will get out. No, it's eternal, and it's eternally fixed. Now this thought, and this teaching that hell is eternal, it eliminates theory that there is a second chance after death, that somehow somebody can you know, get baptized for the dead, or we can pray for them, or we can offer something, or maybe you could repent. No. No, he clearly states that no one crosses from one place to the other, and from the other place to the first one. No one. It is fixed. Passage we read at the beginning of the service. Listen to it again. This is a description of those who are in hell. He says, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And He said this, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in His image, and whoever receives the mark of His name. Notice, forever and ever. And without breaks, because they have no rest day and night. That is a description of life in hell. And this is a description of those who will suffer just like the rich man. If you end up in this place, this is a place of eternal justice and torment. Now once the rich man realizes that he will never escape that place, he has concern for his brother, brothers. And he gives his second request. Notice he still remembers his brothers. Maybe he was the oldest one. Maybe he left an example for them. So he says, then I beg you, Father, if I can't get out of this place, then I beg you, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. In order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now think about it. A person in hell has a heart for evangelism. A person in hell is asking that Lazarus would go and he would preach and he would warn. Not necessarily because he loves the gospel, but he doesn't want people to end up in the same place where he is. He doesn't want his brothers to experience what he's now experiencing. And in verse 29, we have one of the greatest verses on the sufficiency of Scripture. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. You want to know how to escape hell and how to get to heaven? Read the Word. You don't need somebody to come back from the dead. You don't need somebody to give you a new revelation. No, all you need is Moses and the prophet. But this man doesn't buy it. The rich man objects that Moses and the prophets is enough. I mean, he's a typical Jew. 
The typical Jew who told Jesus, like, man, just show us a sign. Show us a wonder. And this guy has the same theology in hell. Because verse 30 says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They need a sign. They need somebody to rise from the dead. They need to hear somebody who has been in hell already. But notice, he says that if you fail to believe the word of God on the pages of Scripture, you will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, unbelief at heart is a moral issue. It is not the issue of evidence. It's not like you don't have enough to make a decision. It's not like you need a little bit more evidence to make informed decision. No. Unbelief at heart is a moral issue where you don't want to submit to God. Where you don't want to submit to His law. Now Abraham's claim is verified even in the Gospels, even in the Bible. You read John 11. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which is a different Lazarus than this one. He was dead four days. And you remember how the entire nation repented because Lazarus came back. Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. They wanted to kill Lazarus and they wanted to kill Jesus. Somebody from the dead came back and they should have like, hey, dude, what happened? Where were you? What's going on? They should have listened to him. I mean, think about Jesus himself. Jesus rose from the dead and everybody just believed and repented. And that, no, that's not what happened. No, they tried to cover it up. And the Jews tried to destroy Christianity when it was just formed. Isn't that what happened? Somebody from the dead came back, preached, proclaimed, and they failed to believe. Why? Because Abraham's words are true. If they don't listen to Scripture, there is nothing else that will convince them. So when we go out and preach, it's not that you need to have these elaborate arguments, and you need to explain it, and it's like, people, I'm going to give you this evidence and that evidence. No, preach The gospel preached the word. And if they don't believe the truth that is here, there's nothing that will ever convince them. That's what Moses is saying. That's what Abraham is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Notice, Jesus has a perfect knowledge of the afterlife. And that's what he says. If you fail to believe the words of Scripture, there is nothing and there is no one that will convince you of that. So we have five truths. Five truths. The death is inevitable. You will one day die. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you did, you will die. And there's life after death. There's heaven and hell, and you will be in one of them. And this life determines where you will be in the next. If you submit it to the scripture, you'll be in heaven. If you did not, you'll be in hell. And if you'll be in hell... You will be a place of eternal justice and torment. Now, having looked at the details of this account, let me ask you personally are you ready for life after death? If you were to face God today, are you ready? Because you will face God. And I would fail in my job here if I didn't tell you that. There is a way to escape hell and to know that today.
right? We have the whole New Testament written. He says, these things I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know today that you're not going to hell and that you're going to heaven. Not because you're a good person, not because you live the perfect life, not because you've never... No, but because you placed your faith in the one who saves from hell. You placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life on your behalf, hung on the cross, took your sins, paid for them, and now the Father says, because you humble yourself, and because you plead for mercy, I give you eternal life as a gift. And you get to go to heaven, because I paid your way there, and you've asked for it. That's the message. That's the gospel. And that's what you can rejoice in. So if you're a believer and you read this, yeah, you might say, listen, this is a terrifying stuff. Hell is terrifying. And it should be. And it's on the pages of scripture to terrify you of that. But you know what? If you're a believer, you're not going there. We're not going there. It's not for us. It's been prepared for the devil and his angels and those who will follow them. But if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going there. So you know what? You can read this and you can rejoice that this is what you've been spared of because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. That is a great reason for rejoicing. On the other hand, this is a great reason to go out and to preach. Exactly what we've heard of earlier, right? There are people, majority of people living right now, they will end up in hell. This must be a sobering thought. That the people that you go to and that we went last couple Saturdays and gave tracts to and that reject and either laugh or do whatever else, they're on their way there. And you have an opportunity to warn people. We know God is sovereign over salvation. And we know that God will save whom, who, whom He will save. But the way He saves is by taking those who are redeemed, those who understand this, and sending them out so that they would preach the gospel so that people would not go there. So you could rejoice that you've been spared hell. And you can go out with the gospel to those who are on their way there. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you have a testimony of Jesus. You have testimony of Moses. You have testimony of Abraham. You have a testimony of guy from hell begging you not to come there. Listen, you will either heed that testimony and you will repent or you will disregard it. Now, if you're afraid of hell, it's a great place to start. But being afraid of hell is not enough to get you into heaven. Fear of hell does not save anyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ does. But the fear of hell is the first step on your journey to grace. The fear of hell is the first realization that, yes, I have sinned against God. And if God is just, and He is, and He judges me and gives me what I deserve, this is where I'm going to go. But you know what? There is a free offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin, repent, trust in Christ, and He will give you that free gift of mercy. Because you're still alive. You're still hearing my voice. You're still sitting here. And in this life, you could still do this because the offer of mercy still goes out and it is still available. But you know what? If you leave this life in the state of spiritual death without ever repenting, without being born again, then your state becomes permanent. And you will join this rich man, and then you will beg for mercy. And you won't get any. You will ask for someone to be merciful to you, but it will be too late. And the only person to blame for that will be you. 
Just like this man realized. So don't let that be you. Go to the Lord. Repent and believe. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word. And I do pray and I do ask that every single person before walking out from here, that they would be convinced that their eternity is secured because they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that if anyone is not in that state, I pray that you would shake them to their core and may your word produce its result in their lives so that you would cause them to be born again and believe. I pray that you would give us desire, boldness to go out and proclaim this truth to others so that many more would hear, many more would believe and join you in eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.